You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Good afternoon, everybody. It's good to see you all. Uh, so the title of this course is um, A Babylonian, a Greek, and a Roman walked into Jerusalem. Who wants to finish that joke? No? Okay. Um, so uh, it's a, a, a walk through ancient Jewish history. Now, ancient Jewish history is a very interesting phenomenon, a, a very interesting thing, um, because most of the... Hey, how are you? I'm good. Okay. Most of the story that I imagine many of us are familiar with um, is not, uh, I think, properly called history at all. Uh, so we'll get into that in a little bit. I'll tell you what I mean. Um, and uh, much of our understanding of ancient Jewish history is, is filtered through um, a, a religious lens, a, religi- a religious view of, uh, of, of, uh, of our past. Um, and in some ways that's helpful, and in some ways uh, that uh, can be a, a, a distraction from the serious study of history. So we're going to intersperse what we talk about um, with, uh, with what we know from, uh, from our religious tradition and also what we know uh, from outside sources and what we can piece together through the various ways of knowing history. All right, so let's start at the end of our section today, okay? Our section today is going to be the Babylonian part of that uh, trifecta, Babylonians, Greeks, and Romans. Um, And uh, we end today talking about Babylonians, but it's not really where we begin. In some ways it is, in some ways it isn't. We need another chair, don't we? Um, So I think there's, there's, uh, there's, yeah, Irv has got one for you. Okay. Um, so in 586 BCE, the Babylonian army, uh, which had uh, uh, essentially uh, been in control of uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, had held uh, the kingdom of Judah as a vassal state for uh for a, a significant period of time, for uh, a period of, of, of close to um, uh, two decades, um, uh, finally entered in to Jerusalem after a siege, um, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and uh, um, divided the population into portions. Um, one portion, the, uh, the, the priesthood and the wealthy aristocracy, uh, the, the royal family uh, took them into captivity in Babylonia, uh, and uh, the rest, uh, a large portion of the population, uh, they slaughtered, and the rest were uh, um, uh, kept as uh, servants for the, uh, for, for the Babylonians then in control of, uh, of, of Judah and Jerusalem. That's where the story ends. Right? And that's where we'll pick up next time in, uh, in, in what happens after that. But I want to start at the end. Because it paints a picture, I think, of, uh, of that is the, the, the real cataclysm, the real momentous uh, a period in Jewish history, where in a lot of ways all Jewish history really begins. So everything we know about Jewish history, or everything Jew, many Jews believe, I should say, about Jewish history, comes in the wake of that cataclysm comes in the wake of the destruction of the temple, the exile into Babylonia, the captivity in Babylonia, which lasts for several decades after that. Um, And much of what we know of or believe about Jewish history um, was written in the wake of that cataclysm. So the Bible itself was, um, at at best, pieced together and edited together by the people, uh, by the aristocracy, uh, the Jewish aristocracy living in exile in Babylonia, um, and so it was written and compiled and edited um, with the needs of a uh, diaspora Judaism already in mind, and uh, was written to perpetuate Jewish belief and Jewish culture, Jewish tradition for that audience, uh, and, uh, um, and uh, was written in the hopes of ultimate restoration. Uh, because the, captiv- the captives who went to Babylonia believed that, uh, that, that their captivity would be temporary and eventually they'd be resettled um, in their homeland. Now, a lot of what they wrote was based on previous material and older traditions and older stories. We'll see that a little bit later. Uh, but nevertheless, 
most of what we have, most of what we call the Bible, um, was compiled and, and even in some cases written during that period. And with that, uh, with that mindset, by those people, which were really just a portion of the Jewish population, with their interests and their agenda and their needs in mind. Right? Which, which is to say that uh, all history... And all documentation uh, that we consider to be historical, all historical record is always written from a particular point of view by particular people in a particular time and place. Which means it always needs to be read, you know, to, for lack of a better term, with a grain of salt. With, a, with an eye toward the biases and agendas of the people writing it. Right? Um, we tend to think of the Bible as being unified and dropped down from, uh, from heaven. The scientific study of history and of literature and of text, archaeology has told us, has shown us that that's not really an accurate picture of, of the Bible. And so the Bible, too, is not, a, uh, is not a fully accurate depiction of history in, in the classical sense. Indeed, there's not really such a thing as a fully accurate depiction of history. All history is storytelling, and all history is, uh, is, is pieced together from particular points of view with particular agendas in mind. Some are able to achieve it uh, more dispassionately. Some are able to achieve it uh, um, more objectively. Uh, but, uh, but all history is written from a, a point of view. Right? You have to decide um, what pieces of evidence you're going to weave into the narrative and what pieces of evidence you're going to leave out of the narrative. Right? What point of view you're going to construct the narrative from. Right? All history is storytelling that way, the Bible too. So that means that we are not going to start this historical study from, uh, from let's say, the creation of the world, which is what, where the Bible starts the historical study from. We're not even going to start the historical study from the patriarchs, because it turns out that the patriarchal narratives um, aren't uh, uh, aren't held uh, um, as um, uh, uh, accurate histories by the people who who study and uh, and understand these things. We have no outside historical evidence of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob beyond biblical literature. And biblical literature, as we'll see, um, is uh, is written much much later uh, than than those narratives, right? So we're talking about uh, the the time period that the Bible um, proposes the patriarchs would be sometime around 1900 BCE. If you hold by the traditional, and you can see on this. Uh, um, Timeline that I handed out. Are there if there are extras, we can pass them along back there. Were there extras? And if they're not extras, maybe people around the table who are sitting next to somebody can share. We can pass them along just so that people in the back can um, have them to look at. Right. So even if we're talking about a, uh, a a traditional religious understanding of the history, even then the Bible is um, given or written um, a, a good. 700, 800 years after the, uh, after the stories of the, of the patriarchs, right? So 700, 800 years is, uh, um, is a long time uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to look back and write history of, right? And let, of course, you, know, you say, okay, well, God wrote it, and God knows the whole history, and God knows all the, or that's fine. So that's one possible way of looking at it. That's not the scientific way of looking at it. That's not the historical um, that's not what good historians would do. Good historians would want to see where, what other sources can we look at to corroborate the evidence. Right? What archaeology do we have to corroborate the evidence or to not corroborate the evidence? What other, what other sources, what other material do we have to look at? So by that accounting, um, the time of the patriarchs, which is about 1900 BCE, is much, much earlier than the earliest known uh, biblical narratives. By most um, liberal estimates, the, um, the, the, the earliest sources of the Bible were not written uh, until, um, until sometime around uh, the 8th century. 
maybe you could have some pieces that were written a little bit earlier than that. Ninth century, there are some pieces of the uh, Bible that are that are believed to be of really uh, great antiquity, even older than that. Ninth century, maybe tenth century, but still, you're talking about then 900 or a thousand years after the stories of the patriarchs, and again with no outside evidence, right? There's not uh, there's not Mesopotamian scrolls that allude to a person named Abraham. There's not uh, there, there's not Akkadian scrolls that allude to a person named Isaac. And to the extent that there are, there would be very little way of, of, of knowing if the Isaac or Abraham that they're talking about are the Isaac and Abraham that our, that our text is talking about. And a lot of biblical scholars think that those characters are archetypes, are sort of like hero narratives, right? So like, uh, like the Hercules narratives in Greece, right? That they are, um, that they're describing uh, pictures, a composite image of, a, of, of, a, of, of people or a mythical figure uh, that, uh, that, that, can, that can help explain um, uh, origins, but more importantly, and I think this is really the Bible's purpose, is not really to talk about history, but to talk about meaning, right? And to talk about morality, to talk about purpose, to talk about direction. The Bible is much more interested with, uh, with, with, the, with our personal and our national relationship with God than it is about um, a, uh, uh, an accurate and objective depiction of history. And so some people say that the, that the Bible is the, really the first human attempt to write a, a narrative history. And there's an element of truth to that, except for the Bible is not really primarily concerned with history. The Bible is primarily concerned with the relationship with the God of Israel. And seeing the relationship with the God of Israel play out in various elements of its history, some of which were written contemporaneously to the authors of that history, right? So some of the history we know was written at the time that it was happening, and some projecting back many, many centuries, right? Without a lot of, um, there was no archaeology then, there was, uh, there, there weren't, particularly good records, in, especially in Semitic societies. Um, Egyptians, Babylonians kept very good records. The Israelites weren't, uh, weren't very good. Um, so they didn't have a lot to go on other than oral traditions, stories, myth, mythology, etc. Right? So what we want to do is talk about what we know. And it's very hard to talk about what we don't know. Much of what we know of Jewish history doesn't start until around the year 1000, maybe a little bit before. But most of the uh, 1000 BCE, that is. By the way, I I don't know if we're familiar with these terms, just to be on the same page. Um, We're using the terms BCE and CE instead of BC and AD. So BCE means before the Common Era. CE means the Common Era. Um, Those are... um, multicultural substitutes for the, uh, the terms B.C., which is before Christ, and Anno Domini, which is uh, the year of our Lord, right? We're talking about the, um, the, the charting of time after the, birth of, after the birth of Jesus. So they're talking about the same time periods, but just with different terminology to make them a little bit more ecumenical. So we'll use the terms B.C.E. and C.E. That's the, in, in academic circles, those are more in fashion now. Anyway, so that's very helpful. So... Most of what we know about Jewish history, which means uh, a handful of things. One, um, most of the outside um, evidence that we have of anything happening with a group of people called Israel, called the people of Israel. Um, Archaeological evidence in the land of Israel. Much of what we've found, at least so far, um, uh, it's very hard to piece together an accurate picture of anything that happened before around the year 1000 um, BCE. So it means that in some ways, um, we're starting well into the biblical account, well into the biblical narrative, sometime around the beginning of the book of Kings or maybe 2 Samuel, where we don't really know if there was such a person as, say, King David. We don't really know if there was such a person as King Saul. It could be that those people um, are in the Jewish consciousness like King Arthur is in the British consciousness. Maybe there was a King Arthur, maybe there wasn't. Right? Um, maybe it was a projection back um, in a powerless age to a glory, uh, to, a, to a, uh, um, a golden era, a golden age that actually never existed. We don't really know. We'll talk about them because there is some evidence that, uh, that, that they existed, but we don't really know. Right? Okay, 
So, yes, Joyce. What about the pharaohs? We know that they existed. So there is a lot of Egyptian written history, but very little Egyptian written history that uh, that uh, that talks about a people called Israel. Why would we invent a slave history for ourselves? So that's a that's a good question, um, and I don't want to uh, um, at all go against anything that Rabbi Wolpe said. Um, um, no, and I mean that in all seriousness. Um, although his son um, uh, uh, definitely uh, uh, may, makes a convincing argument uh, that it's possible that we did invent a slave history for ourselves. Um, listen, I think there are. Um, so actually, I'm going to hold that question. Okay, um, we're going to get into that, but the the. There are lots of reasons why a, why a, a people might uh, might I don't want to say invent, uh, but uh, but but compose a history that looks like that. One reason is that uh, that they weren't really talking about history at all, but they were talking about um, an, an approach to life, an approach to uh, to how we engage the world. Right, that that in some ways the story of all peoples is a slave story to a freedom story. It may not happen exactly like the Exodus. What, so that's also true, right? Um, everybody loves an underdog story, right? And so that's true if I'm talking about myself, right? Um, politicians make this up all the time, right? Where they, where they talk about their very humble beginnings, even if they didn't really have such humble beginnings, right? Because it makes for a more compelling story. And it makes for a, a, a more um, a dynamic present, if you could say, you look at where I was then, but look where I am now, right? Um, so there's... It's possible that our ancestors felt the same way. It's also possible that there are kernels of truth to that slave story, kernels of historical truth to that slave story. It seems very likely from the historical evidence that we have so far that there was no mass exodus of an entire nation of Israelites from Egypt around the year 1200 BCE. It is possible that there was an exodus of some Hebrew slaves, of a core, a cluster, a small population of Hebrew slaves from Egypt around that time. It's also possible that the exodus story was allegorical. We'll see in just a moment that the story of, of this period of ancient Israel um, is really actually not the story of Israel at all. It's the story of two mighty powers that were constantly battling for supremacy of the ancient Near East. Egypt on one side and Babylonia on the other. And for a goodly portion of uh, what we call ancient Jewish history, the land of Israel, which you can see if you uh, uh, turn to your um, the Etzchayim Chumash. So turn to page 1151 and then turn to the glossy pages that are after that, and then keep on going uh, a few, and you see a whole map that's titled The Near East in the Time of the Prophets Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, and Micah. Which is uh, right next to a, a map of uh, the, the city of Jerusalem. Alright, so this map of the ancient Near East is a little bit later than we're starting with for ancient Jewish history, the time of Hosea, Amos, uh, Isaiah, and Micah is uh, the the uh, the eighth and uh, uh, the the eighth and ninth excuse me the eighth and seventh centuries uh, BCE. This is a little later, but it's still the same land masses. Oh yeah, please. Yes, I will after I pass these along. Hold on. Yeah, Lita's got it. Okay, everybody see everybody see this map? So you, the easiest way to tell you is to turn to page 1151 and then keep on going. There's glossy pages right after that. Sorry, excuse me. I meant 1511. 1511. 1511. It's under the map of Narberth? Okay, good. It's under the map of Narberth. Why is that the map of Norbert? It does it. Really? Okay. okay, so this is the this is the this is the Middle East. This is the Near East. Okay, 
Um, and you can see the, you know, the tiny little uh, Israel. Uh, let's call it for the time being Israel, even though that's not really accurate at the time we're talking about. It's not called Israel yet. But tiny little Israel, tiny little Canaan, right? Standing between Egypt at the left-hand corner of the page. Uh, and uh, you see, if you go up to the, to the right, you see Assyria, okay? Um, keep on going a little bit, and you see where it says uh, Madai, um, uh, and below that is Babylonia, okay? So Babylonia is modern-day Iraq, more or less. Right? Assyria is more or less modern-day Syria, Assyria, um, in the early stages of Jewish history, doesn't really exist as an independent uh, kingdom yet. Um, so this is a later map. Um, but uh, the, the, the major centers are Babylonia, Mesopotamia, and Egypt. Right? Um, and so the, the, the history of, of Israel, in some ways, is the history of being caught in the crossfire of these two powerful uh, cultures and powerful nations. And there are theories, going back to your question, Joyce, there are theories about the, the Exodus narrative that, uh, that, that, that uh, make it a, an, an allegory for a rebellion that, uh, that some of the um, uh, Hebrew-Israelite peoples had at one point over Egyptian dominance in the land of uh, Canaan, right, in the land of Israel, and, uh, and that, uh, that, that, that they, they were slaves in the sense that they were a vassal state to the, to the Egyptians, right, and they threw off dominance. So that's another possibility, so it means that, uh, that they may not have invented a slave narrative, uh, but that was um, uh, um, how they constructed that story, right? Um, I think it's probably likely that, um, that there was, at some point, a... Um, a small group of Hebrews who were slaves in Egypt that eventually were liberated and, and made the trek to um, to the land of Israel, and eventually that became a a, a larger national narrative. Um, I think that it evolved over time. Um, there, are, I think, are some good textual and archaeological reasons to support that that we don't have to get into now. But I think of it in, in much the same way as the story of the pilgrims. Um, leaving England and landing on Plymouth Rock is really talking about a, a very small and uh, um, uh, you know limited group, but we all have assimilated that into our national story and our national narrative. And we're talking about um, you know a, a, an evolving culture over the, over the period of many centuries. Right, America is still very young. We're talking about seven, eight hundred centuries. Uh, excuse me, seven, eight hundred years, uh, seven or eight centuries um, between uh, those times. Yeah. Yes, we have. But remember, the prayer book is uh, composed. Um, I mean, the earliest the earliest versions of our prayer book that we have are um, actually one was just discovered. Um, the oldest one that they found, I think, it's something like eight fifty CE. Um, you look like you have a question. No, no, no. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, so our prayer book is 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 much later, and our prayer book takes many pieces from the Bible, which again is a later piece of literature from the events that it describes, um, that may or may not be describing history as we know and identify it today, may, it was not particularly concerned with, with, with fact-based narratives. Right? What the Bible is concerned with is meaning-based narrative. Right? It's a vehicle for communicating meaning and, and, uh, and, and morality and culture and lifestyle. Right? Um, if so we'll get into some of that, but uh, um, uh, so it's in our prayer book because for a long time it's been part of the Jewish consciousness. It's been part of the Jewish consciousness because it's in the in the Bible. It's in the Bible because um, it evolved into being part of the Jewish consciousness before there was a Bible. But it probably only reflects a kernel of factual historical truth. Um, and if you strip away the layers of the Bible, we'll get into the different layers of the Bible a, a, a little bit later, if you strip away the different layers of the Bible, you'll get to that kernel of truth, I think, um, which describes a um, small group of uh, slaves in Egypt who were slaves in Egypt for a couple of generations and uh, then were, were liberated um, with three more naturalistic plagues and not the ten plagues that we know and love, but that's a whole other conversation. Okay. Um, <laughs> 
Other questions at this juncture? What was or what is Arabia today? What is it today? Yeah. Uh, a combination, Jordan and Saudi Arabia. Um, Jordan to the north, Saudi Arabia to the, to the south. Um, Assyria is Syria and Lebanon, right? Um, uh, 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 Babylonia is Iraq. Uh, Madai is, uh, is Persia, Iran. Um, Persia is not a player yet uh, on, on, the, on the scene in the ancient Near East, or not in our story at least. Did the old books of the Arabs, the Muslims, talk about Abraham? And do they correlate with that? So they do. The, the, the Quran talks about Abraham, and they see Abraham as, a, um, as an important figure in their history too. But remember, the, uh, the, the Quran was only written in the, uh, in, around the year 800 CE. Right, so that's also much, much later, um, and uh, and and um, was written in a context in which the um, uh, the, the peoples of uh, of Saudi Arabia, Muhammad had a lot of uh, contact with and good relationships with um, the Jews in Mecca and in Medina, um, and so the, the the people at that time in pre-Islamic uh, Arabia. Um, uh, saw a lot of uh, value in the stories and the culture of the Jews, um, and uh, in, in some ways assimilated and, and adopted those uh, those stories, or incorporated them as their own. Right. So yes, they're in uh, the the Islamic literature, um, but that doesn't necessarily give them more historical pedigree. Um, yes. Yeah. So two weeks ago, I, I took a. Uh, I found the tree starting with Abraham off the computer and went all the way down to uh -huh. Esau and who he married and, you know. So this was just, they just made this up. I mean, they said that, <laughs> that this one had married this one and they had these children they made and this it one up this based one, on the Bible you know, they, the it was It was a whole sheet with little teeny yeah. printing all the way down from Abraham down, you know. I, yeah, so I think, I think made up is too strong. Um, I think that uh, before there was a Bible, there were there oral were traditions. oral traditions and oral cultures, right? Um, and so going back a long time, um, there were stories of heroes named Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. By the way, not necessarily in sequence, not necessarily related to each other. That's a whole other conversation potentially, right? Um, over time, those narratives and and ideas get solidified. So if I'm telling us, if I'm if I'm a Benjaminite. And I'm telling stories around the campfire of Benjaminites. And my kid says, you know, in school the other day, I heard this story of a guy named Abraham. Was he a Benjaminite? And the father says, of course he was a Benjaminite, right? He was a good, powerful, strong. In fact, he was a Benjaminite before there were Benjaminites. Because Benjamin's father was Jacob, right? Have you heard of Jacob? And Jacob's, right? So that's how these things, and over time, in, in the, in, you know, this is not linear. This is not. Uh, um, this is this is messy and long and evolutionary. Over time, those um, narratives congeal and solidify. Sometimes there are conflicting ones, and sometimes what we have in the Bible, especially a lot of the genealogies that we have in the Bible, are actually profoundly later additions into the Bible, according to biblical scholars. In in some ways, as an attempt to. Um, show that other potential genealogies aren't the right ones. Or to give authority and credibility to the narratives in the text because they were written for an audience that was, um, that was more historical and focused or more ge genealogical in nature, was much more interested in that sort of stuff. Right? Um, so made up, I think, is too strong. Um, I think that uh, um, uh, um, constructed... Uh, um, uh, out of pre-existing narratives and placed in um, in in, uh, in in place of competing narratives um, for particular purposes um, is I know that's longer than made up, but uh, but but something I'm more comfortable with. I think yeah. it's 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 not as if the authors of the Bible were were um, were like making up stories from their from their brains, right? It wouldn't have gained traction otherwise. The, the reason that the Bible um, uh, became such a powerful uh, and, and um, uh, um, collectively celebrated document, there's a few reasons for that. I mean, the first is um, that people knew the stories. Well, they must have had some notes. Yes, right, exactly. It wasn't all oral. They must, I mean, King David with his Psalms, right. 
Somebody must have written down some of King David's songs. If there was a King David and if he did actually write the psalms. But somebody wrote the psalms. Well, somebody wrote the psalms, that's true. Um, or actually, I would probably uh, I would put it as many people wrote many of the psalms. Um, but what, what happened is that there are... Um, that, that, uh, that the stories that are contained in the Bible have, have very ancient pedigrees, right? Um, they're like, they, people read the stories and say, oh yeah, I remember that story. That's a good story, right? And uh, um, and 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 because if it because if it weren't the case, they would have said, "Wait a minute! I never heard that. I never heard anything about the Red Sea before. I never heard anything about the about the uh, slaves in Egypt before." It doesn't mean that it's historically factual. It just means that um, that 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 it emerges from a pre-existing culture and a pre-existing narrative. But it's loose. It's loose, <laughs> and it congeals over time. Yeah. Didn't you ever hear the expression that uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence? I have heard that expression. So just because we haven't found things doesn't mean that they don't exist and that this wasn't true. That is true. That is true. It, however, um, we do have a lot of evidence. Right? We do have a lot that we've, uh, that, that we've discovered and that we've learned. Our picture of the ancient world um, is constantly evolving. Right? So everything that we're talking about now is just what we know now, or what we think now. Um, and you could say, okay, it's what we think now, but until we have really conclusive proof that the, uh, that the received traditional um, uh, approach is not true, then I'll believe the received traditional approach. Um, I think that, uh, that we know more now than we did previously, um, and the picture that has emerged is a very compelling picture. Um, so, you're right, the absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, um, but... A substantial amount of evidence can mean that it's very likely that the that what we don't have yet um, may not actually exist. Right. So for I'll give you a, a good example of that. Right. Um, the Egyptians were very good historical record keepers, and we know a lot about Egyptian culture. We've read all the hieroglyphics. Right. We've uh, we we've seen all the pyramids. We've dug up half of the country. Right, um, the fact that um, there has only been um, one ancient document ever discovered from Egypt to mention uh, before much much later in history. I mean, in the in in the uh, more prehistorical period, right? The the Exodus period, let's say. There's only one document from that period that ever mentions the word Israel is a very strong piece of evidence that the Egyptians, A, weren't very concerned about the Israelites, and B, may not have had a lot of contact with them, which makes it very unlikely that if they only mentioned them once, in one context that doesn't talk at all about slavery, and in fact talks about the same period that we think that the Exodus happened, and yet talks about the Egyptian, uh, an Egyptian king conquering Israel and wiping them out, Right, um, which is the I mentioned this on the timeline, the Merneptah steel. Uh, Merneptah was a was a pharaoh of Egypt. Um, it's the first mention of Israel uh, outside the Bible in, in history, um, and so only in that period of ancient Egypt. So the fact that that's the only instance in which the term Israel is used in ancient Egypt, um, it may not be proof that the Exodus didn't happen, right, or at least not the way we think it did. Um, but it is a pretty solid piece of evidence, especially considering how much else we know and have seen from ancient Egypt. So that's, that's I think, um, an important thing to keep in mind. You're right, that, that just because we haven't found things yet doesn't mean that they don't exist. However, we found a lot, and it leads to the conclusion that if we haven't found it yet, it probably doesn't exist. Um, okay. I just want to mention to you, Rabbi, yes. Just as I have a nine-year-old, very curious child that lives in San Francisco. He's now in Hebrew school and asked his teacher how to do Red Sea part from a scientific point of view. So he wanted to know how the Red Sea could part from a scientific view. He's only nine. She said, we'll discuss it later. We'll discuss it later. (laughs) I think his brain was born with a question mark. Okay. So let's let's take a let's take a step back. All right. Um, the first thing that I want to talk about is our terminology. Okay. Um, so 
the term uh, Israel. Uh, the Bible has an etiology of the word Israel, and that is found in uh, the story of Jacob wrestling with a mysterious figure, uh, possibly an angel, possibly uh, the guardian angel of his brother Esau, possibly God himself, possibly his own guardian angel, we don't know, um, wrestling with an angel and uh, uh, being uh, uh, more or less victorious in that struggle and pinning the angel down and saying, I'm not going to let you leave until you bless me. And the angel says, uh, no longer will you be called Jacob, you'll be called Israel because you have struggled with beings divine and human and have prevailed. And so that's the Bible's etiology of the word Israel. Um, that's, that's fine, that's good enough. Um, we don't really know um, where the word comes from. Again, the only outside reference to, uh, the earliest outside reference to the, to the uh, name Israel is in that Merneptah steel. Um, but this is why it's very hard to talk about um, uh, 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 the history of the Jewish people before the year 1000. Um, the year, uh, around the year 1000, what, what day do I have it exactly here? Divided Kingdom 922. That's, I think, the best... Uh, actually, let's start a little bit before that. Let's, let's talk about Solomon. We... Uh, uh, there's, there's pretty good evidence to suggest that, uh, that, that Solomon um, was a king who reigned in Jerusalem um, over a united people called Israel, um, which was a, um, a, a, a united kingdom of a, a number of different, uh, let's call them Semitic tribes. Okay? In the Bible, they're called the Twelve Tribes of Israel. In history, they may not have been 12 tribes of Israel. They may have been 12 Semitic, different Semitic tribes um, that, uh, that, uh, that came together over common culture and interests. Right? So um, it's, it's sort of like how um, there were a lot of colonies in North America. We think in, uh, in American, we think back in American history and we say, okay, well, there, were, there were 13 original colonies. That's not really true. There were a lot of original colonies. There happened to be 13 that joined together in rebellion against, uh, against the British. Right? And they were, those 13 eventually became the 13 original states of, uh, of, of the United States. But before that, they were just 13 of a number of other colonies that had, a lot of those colonies had uh, uh, similar, similar cultures and some different cultures, similar cultures and similar backgrounds and similar histories and similar literatures, and so there was a lot that united them together, and a lot that kept them loose and kept them separate and independent entities. You, talk, you look at the history of the United States, and uh, each of those colonies, um, uh, in a lot of ways, saw themselves as independent countries. Um, they were they were vassal countries or uh, uh, colonies of England, but you know you read Thomas Jefferson's letters on the state of Virginia, right? Um, he sees Virginia as a as as a state, right? It's a it's his country, right? Um, and so uh, in the ancient world, it was very similar to that. You had tribes of people in um, in this land that, for lack of a better term at the moment, we'll call uh, um, uh, ancient Israel. Um, there were a lot of different tribes. It ha- so it happened that 12 tribes saw themselves as uh, having um, shared culture, shared identity, um, uh, shared history, um, and, uh, and eventually formed a, um, a, a, a sort of loose confederacy. Um, so that loose confederacy... Um, uh, was met with a lot of threats. One of the major threats to that loose confederacy was a, uh, a group of people called the Philistines. The Philistines primarily lived around the, along the coastal plain of the land of Israel. The Philistines weren't uh, native Semitic people. Um, they uh, probably came across the Aegean from, uh, from, from, uh, uh, the, uh, from, the, from the area of Greece. Um, came uh, with um, uh, uh, superior technological knowledge. The Bible attests, these stories uh, um, are are recorded in the Bible in um, the books of uh, um, Judges and uh, Samuel. Um, And they had superior technological knowledge. They they had 
iron, they knew how to work with iron and make iron weapons when uh, the rest of the world was still in the Bronze Age, right? Imagine, like, the United States has nuclear technology and most the other, most of the rest of the world has conventional weapons, right? That's, that's the technological advantage that the Philistines had. So the Philistines were a, uh, were, uh, a major threat to the Semitic peoples who lived in the land of Israel. Um, and combined with that threat was the dominant powers of, uh, of, of Egypt and Babylonia, which were constantly fighting for uh, dominance in, in, in that region. And, part, and because of those external threats and the, um, and the I think, very... Um, uh, 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 reasonable uh, sense that they could accomplish more together than they could separately, um, most of those tribes uh, bound, banded together in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in a confederation. Um, for the early stages of, uh, of that history, um, they were ruled um, in, in, in a manner that befits a loose confederacy. Right? So they were, um, they were ruled by um, charismatic leaders that uh, periodically uh, popped up to help defend against, you know, raiding uh, Philistine armies and, and things like that. Some of those leaders were stronger than others. Some of those leaders had stronger character than others. Um, again, we don't really know a lot about them except for what's written in the uh, Bible and the book of Judges, um, but most historians think that that probably uh, presents a pretty accurate view of the history at, uh, at an early point in the development of, uh, of, of Israel. Um, eventually the threats became very strong, and uh, there was a, a, a popular clamor for uh, stronger centralized leadership. So one of those charismatic figures of the time is a guy named Samuel. Uh, and there's a book of the Bible named after him, uh, where he's uh, the, the major character, and Samuel um, was known as a prophet. Let's put uh, on the side here three really important jobs in, um, in the ancient world, and three elements of, um, of Israelite society that are, that are important to keep in mind now and in the future. So you have King priest, and prophet. Okay, so the, the, um, the, the people who the, uh, the Bible calls judges, or chieftains, um, were somewhere usually a combination of, uh, of king and priest. They had some kind of, they had, they had uh, excuse me, king and prophet. They had um, uh, religious functions, they were seen to have their their charisma and their leadership was divinely ordained. They had the uh, they had the ability to speak God's message and God's uh, and, and God's truth. But they had king-like functions. That, well, I mean, you see in that term judges, right? They had judicial functions. They had military functions. Um, they they were political leaders in in that regard too. Um, and so one of those figures was a guy named Samuel. Um, and uh, the the people, according to the Book of Samuel. Um, demanded at the time um, a, a, a king. Um, in part, that was because there was a major um, Philistine attack on one of the um, most important Israelite uh, centers, which was a place called Shiloh. Um, and Shiloh uh, um, was where, um, the, where, the, where the main shrine was. Before there was a temple in Jerusalem, there was a shrine in Shiloh, um, that uh, um, that uh, had, according to the Bible, uh, the the Ark of the Covenant, which, according to the Bible, had the um, the, the Torah given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Again, that piece of it we're not so sure of, but certainly there was something important contained within that shrine that the uh, that the um, that the Israelites um, held in high value and high esteem. It was attacked by the Philistines. The, um, the Ark was uh, taken into, uh, into captivity in the Philistine cities along the coast. Um, and around that time, there was an outcry among the population for stronger centralized leadership. So Sam, they go to Samuel the prophet, who's the charismatic leader of the time, and say, we want a stronger centralized leadership. Um, uh, and, uh, and according to the Bible, God tells Samuel to, uh, to, to find a person named Saul, who is the son of a, a man named Kish, 
um, who's a Benjaminite. Um, again, right, the, um, Israel is a loose confederacy of tribes. Benjamin is one of those tribes. So Saul was a Benjaminite. Um, uh, uh, Samuel uh, uh, finds him, elevates him um, as king, anoints him as king. And for a couple of years, um, uh, Saul is able, for the most part, to uh, unite the, um, the, the Israelite people under one banner and um, hold at bay uh, the Philistine threat. There are two problems with that. The first is that um, the first is that uh, Benjamin wasn't a very uh, large or powerful tribe, and um, the uh, the real power center, or one of the real power centers, was a tribe called Judah. And it was hard for the Benjaminites to get the Judites on board and some of the other tribes on board. And it was hard for Saul to get some of them on board. Another is that Saul's victories over the Philistines were increasingly not seen as his own. But were increasingly seen um, as uh, um, the, uh, the achievement of one of uh, Saul's soldiers, um, a young boy named David. And David was popularly understood to have defeated the, the Philistine hero Goliath. Um, and uh, the, the mythology, uh, um, or it may have actually happened, who knows, in the book of Samuel, as uh, David uh, sneaking into being such a good soldier that he's able to sneak into the Philistine camp and capture the foreskins of all the Philistine uh, soldiers um, before they were able to acknowledge what really happened and he was able to sneak out. Pretty amazing. David gained this, this uh, extraordinary reputation as a powerful uh, leader. He was from a tribe of very strong pedigree, and people started gravitating toward David uh, for, uh, for leadership, which, um, which was very hard for King Saul. And Saul, it seems like from the biblical account, at least, and again, we don't really have outside evidence of this, um, but, uh, but Saul was prone to, uh, to, to fits of uh, depression and, and, uh, and hysteria uh, and uh, was uh, sort of like the Richard Nixon figure of the, of the Bible, right? Had, uh, um, uh, um, you know, was, was very insecure about his own leadership. Eventually that uh, insecurity got the better of him um, and he, uh, he ended up uh, leading himself and his... Uh, um, and his sons into battle against the Philistines and dying, which freed up leadership for uh, David to take over. David was able to, uh, at, over time, um, uh, either wipe out or win over the remainder of people who were uh, family of or loyal to Saul, and was able to unite um, the stronger Judah, tribe of Judah under his leadership, and the other tribes as well. He uh, conquered a, a, a Jebusite city uh, in, the, in the area of Judah in the south of Israel. And you can see the, the areas that I'm talking about, by the way. Um, if you look at, uh, turn back a couple pages from the map that you were on. And you can see uh, Judah is, uh, is sort of like in the south of Israel, with Jerusalem as kind of its northern border. And so that Jebusite city that, uh, that David uh, captured and conquered uh, was, uh, was, was Jerusalem, um, which formed, it's closer to the south, but uh, somewhat central. So uh, was a, uh, a, a useful capital city for, uh, for his uh, united kingdom of uh, southern and northern tribes. Um, and, uh, and it was also a, a very good strategic city um, uh, because it was hilly and therefore um, easily fortified and easily defended. Yeah. Would you view uh, monotheism as a cultural ethos that held these groups together or was it the, the fear of uh, invasion from other, from other uh, uh, nation states? Yes, yeah, so I think it was both. Um, uh, and what, uh, what proof do we have that monotheism in fact was prevalent among the tribes? So there um, so there is a, a a lot of evidence in in these areas that um, uh, that that the shrines that we've discovered um, um, have all been um, to uh, to one god or the same god. 
Um, so, uh, and, and, and there, there are a lot of shrines um, that, that we've discovered that, uh, um, that, that are dedicated to what we now know as the God of Israel, um, uh, the God who the uh, Bible describes as with the ineffable letters yud Hey vav and Hey. Um, so there's a lot of evidence to suggest that, the, that these uh, different tribes um, one of the cultural um, elements that really united them was uh, was a shared um, religious conviction. With that said, um, the religious picture of ancient Israel is a, is a really complex one. And you can see that if you are able to kind of peel apart the layers of the Bible, you can see some of the development of that. Um, there's pretty broad consensus that um, at the very least the most powerful of the gods is, uh, is uh, um, uh, let's just yud heh vav Yahweh. Um, but there's not necessarily uniformity in the Bible that Yahweh is the only God. Right? And, uh, and in some ways that was an idea that developed over time. Um, but, uh, but for the most part, these different tribes um, saw um, Yahweh as the chief God, right, uh, at, at the very least. So they were united in, in that. Uh, on that score, they were, for the most part, I think, united uh, in language. Um, they were, you know, in the geographic proximity to each other and relatively um, loose borders between each of these uh, 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 tribes um, enabled the free flow of, uh, of, 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 uh, of, of story and uh, of, uh, um, um, of narrative between them. So they also uh, saw themselves as, as sharing the same cultural heritage and cultural um, uh, stories. So they may have disagreed on different points of it, right? They may have disagreed about whether, you know, I don't know, um, uh, they may have disagreed about whether Isaac was a Benjaminite or a, uh, an Ephraimite, right? Uh, but they all um, uh, uh, had shared that story, those stories of Isaac and of Abraham. Um, so they had, they shared that. So there was, there were positive elements of their culture that united them. And then there were those negative elements too, right? That they had common enemies um, uh, that uh, that they saw um, themselves as being um, stronger and able to defend themselves against um, if they were united together. That was that helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So David. Yikes. Um, David was able to uh, unite these tribes together under one kingdom, uh, and for roughly eighty years or so, they were. Uh, um, uh, a united kingdom called the Kingdom of Israel. When David's son Solomon died, who reigned, uh, David reigned for 40 years, Solomon reigned for another 40 years, when David's son Solomon died, there was a power struggle over this, uh, over this uh, growing and strong um, uh, kingdom. Um, on the one hand, there was Solomon's son's uh, Rehoboam, uh, and on the other hand, there was Solomon's uh, general, Jeroboam, uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Um, uh, and uh, they, um, that power struggle resulted in a split of the two kingdoms. You had the kingdom of Judah in the south and the kingdom of Israel in the north. It's a little bit, this is why the term Israel is a little bit confusing because um, the, the, um, the, the story of the Jewish people that we call the story of the people of Israel, um, at a certain point, the, the northern kingdom of Israel will cease to exist, and only the southern kingdom of Judah will remain, but will still identify the kingdom of Judah in the south as, uh, as an Israelite kingdom and as part of the story of the people of Israel. So when Solomon died, the kingdom split, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Um, and according to the Bible's account... Um, in general, um, Israel had uh, a string of uh, bad, one bad leader after another. Um, it, in the historical account, um, it had a very un, um, unstable leadership. Um, and from the Bible's point of view, the reason the leadership was bad and the le- reason the, the leadership was unstable is because they were not loyal to, uh, to the God of Israel that they uh, adopted and, and, uh, and, and assimilated the, um, the, the gods and the practices um, and the culture of uh, the uh, surrounding nations. They started worshipping, uh, usually it was Baal, um, which is a, a, another rival um, a religious practice uh, of the time. The, um, the, the primary culprits of that, the examples that the Bible you know, hold, the standard evil people that the Bible holds up in those stories are Omri, 
uh, who was one of the kings of Israel, and Omri's son Ahab, and his white, his white, his white, his white whale, his wife Jezebel, um, and uh, and we and the the struggles of Ahab and Jezebel were against uh, the the self-described one last true prophet of the God of Israel, Elijah. Right, and so um, you can see that tension. Um, the historical narrative is that uh, the, the the northern kingdom um, uh, adopted new and different practices, um, and there were um, religious conservatives of the old order that were trying to fight and push back against uh, against that new religion that was creeping in. For the most part, the um, the, the kings of, uh, uh, of the south were also described by the Bible as, uh, as bad, with some high points, with some uh, notable exceptions. But Solomon, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem um, remained the center of, uh, of, of religious life for the kingdom of Judah um, uh, during that period. And uh, the Torah is much more sympathetic to the, to the kingdom of Judah. Now that shows you the, um, the importance of, uh, of, of perspective and agenda in writing history because the people who wrote the Bible and put it together were Judites who were eventually exiled to Babylonia. And so um, they are writing uh, um, in some way in defense of what it means to be a Judite and why being, uh, being uh, uh, from the tribe of Judah and from the kingdom of Judah um, represented um, a... Um, um, uh, uh, much more cohesion to the um, to the optimal uh, religion of Israel, right? And that Jerusalem, especially, um, was uh, was central to what it meant meant to be and to practice uh, um, as a um, as a as a Jew and to worship God. The term Jew, uh, as one last thing that uh, that, that I'll um, mention here, the term Jew is a really important one. Okay, um, it doesn't exist until the Babylonian exile, which is why I basically haven't used it uh, in, in this whole conversation up to this point. Um, the term Jew, which may not surprise you, comes from the term, from the word Judah, right? So, um, and in Hebrew, you can see that a lot more clearly. In Hebrew, the, uh, the term for Jew is a Yehudi, plural Yehudim, Jews, right? Judah is Yehuda. Right? So it's, uh, the, the word Jew comes from the word Judah. Um, so the, the, the people collectively known as Jews was just a metamorphosis of the term Judite, Yehudi, right? Um, or Yehudati, I guess, or Yehudi, into, um, uh, um, into a, a new national religious identity called Jews. Previously, they were Judite Israelites, Right? Eventually, they're just Jews, right? That term doesn't really make sense until there's no more people of Israel other than the Judites. In 721, um, the, uh, um, the northern kingdom of Israel is uh, conquered by Assyria, uh, which was an ascendant power in, in the region. Um, uh, uh, most of the, uh, of the uh, Israelites... Um, many were killed. Uh, the rest were the rest basically bled into um, Assyrian society. It's what we know now as the lost ten tribes of Israel. We don't they're, they're gone to history, except for some periodically a group of people pops up and say we are one of those lost ten tribes of Israel. Um, but for all sakes and purposes, the, the the kingdom of Israel is destroyed in 721, leaving the only remaining Israelites, the people of Judah. Right? And they had a stronger um, uh, national cohesion, a stronger uh, um, uh, um, ident- cultural identity in their uh, in their religious practice, right? In their sense of their own history, in their sense of uh, uh, their their own narratives and stories, um, they had um, they uh, uh, they prioritized. Uh, the role of, uh, of the priest of, uh, of Yahweh. They had prophets of Yahweh in ways that, uh, that uh, in Israel there were also prophets. Uh, for the most part, they were prophets who railed against the, the kings of Israel and were not particularly popular figures. Um, in Judah, it was much more uh, patchy. Some were popular, some were not. Uh, Jeremiah is a good example of a prophet that um, sometimes had popularity, but for the most part um, was not particularly liked because he uh, um, uh, said, if you don't shape up, you're going to get destroyed, and then they got destroyed, right? Um, 
but the, the, the culture of uh, the, the connection to um, the, uh, the, the religion of Israel was, uh, was very particular and stronger in the kingdom of Judah, um, especially among the invested population. Uh, in the royal family, in the priesthood, uh, in the aristocracy, um, which meant that when those people were really all that was left of the of the Judite population and were carried off into captivity in Babylonia uh, and stuck together and wanted to retain and, and uh, um, uh, their 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 religious identity together, um, that becomes really the origin of Jewish history. Right? The, the Bible is recorded during that time. You see in your timeline that there are several pieces of the Bible. Um, I, I noted them as, uh, as uh, E-source, J-source, D-source. There are several pieces of the Bible that are written over uh, the course of history, but those are really compiled together as a unified document when um, the uh, aristocracy and priesthood of Judah are in exile in Babylonia. We see that throughout Jewish history, that sometimes... Um, um, exile and oppression is the best thing for the Jewish people uh, because it, uh, it, it helps us um, consolidate and unify and strengthen our own identity and, and solidify an identity that stands up in the face of pressure. Right? Um, and it becomes really the, the foundation and the origin of what we can properly call Jewish history. Right? There's no Jews before that period. Um, Going back before that, and especially before the unified kingdom of Israel, we're really talking about Jewish prehistory. Following that, um, and following the Babylonian exile, after 586 BCE, what you can then talk about is Jewish history.